ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Matthew Bellany. Matt is a former entertainment lawyer and editorial director of The Hollywood Reporter. Currently, he's a founding partner at Puck News, where he writes the What I'm Hearing newsletter. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. We met when you were the editorial director of The Hollywood Reporter, where we worked together. And during that time, you and I had several conversations about memberships versus subscriptions and if they were just semantically different. And now you're one of the founding partners at Puck News, a new media company that aims to cover the four centers of power in the U.S., Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Washington, and Wall Street. And you're the Hollywood piece of the puzzle, which makes obvious sense with a revenue model that has its anchor in membership. So membership versus subscription, are they the same thing? I think the answer, weirdly, is yes and no. I mean, there are synonyms <laughs> in the sense that you a subscription means you are paying to receive something, and membership also means you are paying to be part of something, and it's sort of a semantic difference. But I think with the membership umbrella, it's easier to convince a subscriber that they are getting more for their subscription. And that's because you can add in other things. You can add in the ability to interact with the journalist. You can add in events. You can add in an overall piece of the puzzle that allows someone to have a better attachment to the media organization rather than just a subscription, which sounds like such a passive um, well, it's a very a transactional, experience. very transactional experience. And absolutely. Um, and if memory serves, you didn't feel that it was a good idea to have paywalls and things when we were talking about The Hollywood Reporter. With this, where you've got journalists, influencers and real inside scoops, it seems like it's a kind of a different beast altogether. But let's first back up and talk a bit about Puck itself. So I gave the elevator description of it earlier. Did I miss anything out? Do you want to elaborate a bit on what it is? Uh, that's a pretty good description of the coverage area. What I would I would add is, you know, since you're interested in the model, the model we are using very much relies on a creator first dynamic in the sense that all of our journalists uh, are incentivized via salary and via pieces of our success. So in success, all of the journalists benefit. And that's not typically the case with most media companies. Um, enough, no. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, I think, frustrating for a lot of journalists who get to a point in their career where they are bringing more value to the organization than the organization is giving to them. So right. that's really the sweet spot for the journalists we're interested in. And I think that gets back to your question of the membership or subscription model in a outlet like Puck News versus something like Hollywood Reporter, where I wasn't opposed to a subscription product from the Hollywood Reporter, but I I was opposed to simply flipping on a paywall mm -hmm. for people who have been getting something for free. And right. that that is where you often run into problems in media where a subscriber or a reader to a certain dynamic and then flip the switch on them. And that, that I think that's really difficult, especially well, in the competitive market. 
Well, that's something that I want to dig deeper in a little bit later about paying for news mm-hmm. and and the whole, you know, what the consumer is willing to do. But I want to back up first. You're all stakeholders in the business. So anybody who's a writer is also a stakeholder. Is that correct? That is correct. So why form Puck and not just create a newsletter on Substack? Uh, good question, but it's got a very simple answer. I think for some people, the Substack model works great and they like being you know, their own boss and having their own hours and their own you know, system and they can do whatever they want. For a lot of journalists, I think they appreciate the apparatus that comes with a media company, everything mm-hmm. from getting a paycheck to getting health insurance to having editors to work with, having marketing, having mm-hmm. a product team, having you know people that are in a newsroom that can add to your experience and add to your product. So we're essentially melding the aspects of a traditional newsroom that we think a lot of journalists do like while jettisoning a lot of the stuff that they don't like, which is the you know big hierarchical organization, the commodity news and covering things you don't really want to cover. And big media organizations often take away that direct path to having a relationship with the consumer. And we are all about the journalists cultivating their own audiences. Well, it's it's interesting that you mention all that apparatus, both from a corporate standpoint, the health insurance, the the tech, you know, sending out the newsletter, making sure it's the right newsletter, all these things, that tech support, which then also reduces how much you're going to maybe take home as a, a piece versus Substack. But also, I was really interested that you you do have a newsroom of people who are helping you source material. It's not just I mean, because definitely as a reader. The impression I got was you guys are such influencers. You have such connections that it's really, it's you pulling all that information. Are there more people behind you? Well, again, yes and no. I mean, I am doing mostly my own stuff, but like we have a weekly editorial meeting where we discuss ideas mm-hmm. and, you know, there are, we have a, an editor um, from Fast Company who works with the writers to, you know, suss out the best of what they're doing. And, we have our editor in uh, New York, John Kelly, who works with a lot of people to figure out you know, what they're covering or how are we covering Facebook or how are we going to respond to the Scarlett Johansson stories? Questions like that. Normal newsroom questions. Right. But I think a lot of journalists really appreciate. And it's a, a growing operation. We literally launched like a month or so ago. So it's not like we, uh, we have all of this ingrained culture. We're sort of building the culture right now. Right. And so far, it's been collaboration. When when colleagues reach out to me with a question, I really I try to help them and answer. And I do the same. I've sent you know our our finance guy Bill Cohan in New York uh, a question about stocks and things that I didn't quite understand. Right. So you know th- that's the element of the newsroom that I think you don't really get when you're on your own. I call it the Wild West Substack. Right. Well, it's really interesting because you do get that collaboration and that is so useful for creative production and idea refinement. You can go a bit dog-legged if it's you're just on your own, but you're you're virtual. You're not physically co-located. There's a lot of conversation these days about hybrid office and whether it works, it doesn't work especially in the news context. Do you mind that it's virtual? No, we have an office in New York and Mm -hmm. um, our our staff there goes to the office, um, probably not not every day, but they do have that available. Mm -hmm. You know, it's partially a result of the pandemic. I think a lot of people are still working at home, especially journalists. 
as we grow, if we grow out people in LA, we actually currently have three people in LA. I'm the only one covering entertainment. One of the guys is doing politics and media and another covers race and politics. And, and we just all happen to be in LA. And if we get to the size where an office makes sense, sure. Um, but I don't, you know, I kind of like, I kind of like the working at home and, you know, I, I go to events and meet people a lot and I'm out and around a lot. So it's kind of nice to have this the home base. Right. Who is your target reader? What's their age? What's the demographics look like? Um, you know, I, I don't want to put an age on it because I think that if you're doing if you're doing something right, you can appeal to multi generations. But I would I would characterize our reader as someone who is in the leadership class or is an aspiring to be in the leadership class in one of the power centers in America. So, you know, the theory is that if you are a leader in entertainment or in politics, you kind of need to know what's going on in Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. you need to know what the, what the bankers and the finance people are talking about. And the, that the, at the top level, there is a, an overlap in those worlds. And right. we're trying to, we're definitely not for everybody and we're not trying to be for everybody. Um, the whole point of this is that we are trying to go beyond the headlines a little bit and get to the real conversation of what people are talking about. And right. we do it via these these journalists who are plugged into those communities. Right. Well, there's a level of access and that's what's really appealing. And that's where your own biography, your own in the old days, we'd say Rolodex. I don't know what the new word for Rolodex is, but it's it's all of your contacts in entertainment, media, digital publications. Data is really important. And certainly back in the Hollywood Reporter days, data was really important. How important is reader data to you and your plans? I think it's important. We see what kind of stories people engage with. It's definitely informing what we're doing and some of the decisions we're making. But I don't think that data, you know, is a hundred percent catch-all for what good stories are. You know, a lot of times readers and, and just consumers in general, they don't know what they want. They just know they like it when they see it. Right. So that's that's I think something that is true across all content industries where you have to be informed by the data, but also be willing to follow what's interesting. Right. Well, one of the things that I really enjoy is um, for anybody who's listening, who hasn't read your particular newsletter, the What I'm Hearing newsletter is it's a really fun read. It's got personality and information. It's entertaining without being infotainment, which is it simply is that your writing voice unleashed from The Hollywood Reporter or is that voice tailored to the Puck brand? I mean, you've got Puck, right? Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. And, and there's sort of some fun there. So is that is it tailored to that? Is everybody writing in that tone? You know what? It's really a function of me not being a very good writer, to be honest. Like, I'm not a great writer. And I've never. Well, it's a lot of fun to read. I don't know. I would well, disagree. I, so, so when I approached this, I said, okay, how am I going to make this stand out? And I knew that, you know, because of my background and, and who I was, I would probably get people to at least pay attention initially in this community. So, what was I going to do to make it different? Because there's a lot of coverage of this world. And um, honestly, I, I approached this as if I was writing an email to a friend mm-hmm. or having a conversation over lunch, something really casual, something that, you know, takes advantage of the things I am hearing and the people I'm talking to and the stuff I'm thinking about, but also doesn't try to be 
formal. You know, I, I really like the newsletter format because right. it allows you to be much more casual and kind of break free from the tropes of, of typical journalism where, you know, you've got to do this and that, and you can't really say what you think. And, you know, that's, well, I find it very that. engaging. I, I think it works really well, especially and it's very on brand for the idea of inside, you know, that you do feel like you're speaking with you. It is very conversational and that I think it is successful. And I get a lot more conversation with readers than I ever did at Hollywood Reporter. I mean, I I you'd be surprised that as the editor of Hollywood Reporter, I never got feedback unless it was like a publicist complaining. Occasionally, I, you know, someone would reach out, but not very often. But now every time I send an email, I get, you know, dozens of people sometimes responding like, hey, what about this? Or I think you're right about this or you're wrong about that. Like much right. more of a personal relationship. And I think that's just because, A, it's a different format and I'm coming directly to your inbox. And also the, the tone that I use is very conversational. And right. it's designed to feel like you're having a conversation with a friend. Right. You spoke briefly about the editorial meetings and, and talking about what was going to be covered and what wasn't. Again, when we worked together, the metrics attached to specific pieces of content were pretty important. And so and you did mention the metrics and that you look at the metrics. And so how, how do you evaluate what you're going to write about? How how does that how does that work? I mean, you, well, your newsletter all, comes out very, twice a week, right? Your Thursdays and Sundays? Thursdays and Sunday nights. And I, and I specifically chose those dates and those, that time because they were sort of dead periods in the ecosystem of entertainment media. Hmm. Um, they're, you know, they're, Sunday night is, is like, uh, in my opinion, it's the time when people are getting back into the swing of things. They're figuring out their week. They've done their, you know, weekend duties. And I thought that would be a good time because there's not a lot of media that comes out that night. I was sort of using John Oliver as an example. Everyone thought that was a dead zone for right. late night. And then it turns out not only was it a great night because there's no competition, but he got the entire weekend news to himself and whatever he did would go viral on Monday morning. Right. So, you know, I, I just, I, I thought that would work. And then Thursday night seemed good because it allowed me to, you know, kind of put together my ideas from the week and, it was a time when you know, most of the news of the week is typically broken on Mondays or Tuesdays. So it was a good time for a, a, a takeaway. Right. Um, but in terms of the, uh, the, you know, the, the rest of the, of the plan, like it's, it's really just a chance for me to have a direct relationship mm-hmm. with the reader. And I think that's what people appreciate because mm-hmm. so much, there's so much skepticism about media Oh, what's the agenda here? What's this? And if you really are, I, I feel like if you're kind of straight with people and say, this is what I think's going on, I think they appreciate that. Right. How do you consume your own media? How are you mostly accessing information? Um, I subscribe to a bunch of newsletters. I am on Twitter a lot and I follow people. I know you're not supposed to find news on Twitter, but I feel like my feed is pretty curated. So I have a lot of journalists I trust and um, and I have my go-tos, you know, my morning media that I look at. I, I very rarely watch television news, very uh-huh. rarely, only when there's an earthquake or, you know, a speech or something that is tailor-made for television coverage. Right. Um, it's almost, it's all digital now. I get the New York Times and LA Times daily editions on my email and I get a bunch of other newsletters that, that are in my wheelhouse and, mm-hmm. you know, Twitter. Right. Interesting. So 
you had a soft launch. You started in the summer with a free email newsletter. And then in September, the website with the paywall went live. Was yours the only pre-launch newsletter? That was the only one I was aware of, but where were there others? No, we had a couple others. We had one um, that was uh, William Cohan writing about finance. And that one also has continued. Um, and then we had a couple of other writers who were just doing sort of test runs mm-hmm. on newsletters um, just to kind of churn the waters and get people aware of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know, to be honest, I didn't know if I would continue after the launch. I thought maybe, you know, it would, might go away or become, you know, once a month or something like that, but it, it proved popular. And, you know, I, I feel like I, I like doing it and it's a good venue for my skills. So I kept doing it. Um, right. We also, we also did not expect to have advertising. Well, I was going to ask about the advertising that you have is very media heavy, I guess. And I was wondering whether, is that because those are the advertisers that you brought and they're on your newsletter and they sponsor your content or is that spread out across everybody? And then also thinking about, you know, we discussed earlier the remuneration for the different writers. If you're bringing in advertising, I would think that's a piece of what you take away as well. Yeah, and, and and there is a way to um, attribute advertising to particular authors in a way. I, I don't know. We have a woman in, in New York, our COO, Liz Goff, who handles the advertising piece. So mm-hmm. I'm sort of removed from it. But for advertising, it's all about who is reading you, right? So right. I think from the beginning, we were, you know, the audience wasn't huge, but it was hitting the right people exactly. for certain kinds of advertisers. So they were like, why aren't we sponsoring this? We actually did not expect to have advertising, um, at least at first anyway. And um, we had incoming calls from people. And like now the newsletter is sold out for the rest of the year. And I'm so removed from it. I don't know what's what's in any particular issue. So I'm not you know, influenced by it at all. I mean, mm-hmm. that one of the one of the challenges um, in my previous job was, you know, you talked about engagement all of the the trade press now is incentivized by size of the audience. Right. So when you talk about engagement content, it was almost always based on traffic right. and how many, how many people you could draw to any piece of content. So that's not the same when you're dealing in subscription media, it's all about pleasing the audience so that they are happy with the money that it's spent and they, you know, other, and they, you can recruit other people to subscribe. So it's a much different value proposition. But also with subscriptions, there are two things that happen. You get a plateau and then you also have churn. And I was curious what your conversion or retention figures were like. You went from a free newsletter to, to the subscription. How was the conversion there? And we actually have a meeting today to discuss that. So I don't know the exact okay. metrics yet. But I, everything I've been told is that it's good, much higher than industry average in terms of conversion. We still send out a teaser email to people who have not converted. Okay. And, and it's weird that it also has a very high open rate. You know, the thing I found on my newsletter is that the, the open rate was in the 70%, sometimes wow. 80%. That's very high. That's so high. At THR, the, the open rate was in like the teens or, you know, if that sometimes. So, yeah. you know, and that, and they, it's a much different model. They send out, you know, THR sends out dozens of emails a day. This is two a week. 
Well, so and that makes a difference. Like you're a not treat. drowning. You're not drowning in it. It's sort of like the when the New Yorker issues would pile up in my apartment and I was like, I am not reading these things and it just would be stressful. But it's not stressful if it's only two a week. You can handle handle that. Yeah, there is a sweet spot. And I deal with that, too, because, you know, some people wrestle with the length of their newsletters. And I and I've done the same where it's like, oh, is this too long? Should I cut this item? You know, and I I don't really know where that sweet spot is, but I think. Twice a week from an author, like I think that's that's pretty good. If you are you're paying money to to read someone, you don't really want to be bombarded by that person. I don't. At least not me. I, I I don't know what the answer to that is. I'm sure there's data that will tell us. Mm. But I just um, I feel like twice a week is good. And then the goal of it of 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 Puck is that you might be introduced to other writers that you like and right. you get an, an opportunity to get a bundle so to speak of different authors writing about these different topics so you may come in to the bundle via one author and then all of a sudden you're reading three or four right well that's certainly again i came in through your newsletter and then have seen the others and i, I enjoy that content with traditional news media and visual content discovery of content is happening on social platforms. How are people discovering puck? What's your usual user acquisition strategy? Um, I, I think the authors themselves are the best, are the best advertisement, so to speak. So that's um, where your influencer status matters. So if you're looking at I new so. writers, it's, it's about what's your social footprint. What are the, what is the nature of the audience you bring with you from the get go? Um, yeah, but, but you know what, like, it's not just about social followers. Like if you look at my Twitter followers, I have like, you know, 25 or 23,000 or whatever, like that's not a lot compared to some, but I had a particular profile within this industry that meant people might be interested in what I'm doing next. You know what I mean? Right. That, that, that had value. Whereas some of the some of our writers in the politics space, they have a couple hundred thousand Twitter followers and they're on Instagram and they're doing, you know, their own things. And and that's the value of their social profile. So it, it can it can definitely vary. Um, we also encourage people to do other things like go on television or go on podcasts like this or, right. you know, write a book or do other things that will help raise your own profile, because we feel that the, the as a journalist profile rises, so will we as a company. Right. Well, you've got some synergies there. Uh, we talked about and a lot of media companies are not like that these days, as you know. You know, you right. want to write a book and you work at the Wall Street Journal. It's a whole negotiation, and now they want to own some of your reporting. And if you're right. trying to do television or do speaking or whatever, and you work the New York Times, it's a whole hierarchy of BS that you got to run through. Well, sure, because if if the reader is attached to the journalist, all of a sudden the journalist and their IP becomes a lot more valuable. And the, the outlet is like, look, we are investing in raising your profile. We don't want to invest in building your brand and then having you exit, you know, the rock, whenever the rock uses the rock, it doesn't have to pay some money to wrestling because they built that name. Yeah. I don't know if that, and they may have bought them out. I have no idea, but the whole point is, the incentives of the media companies are generally to utilize the journalists for their work, but to not invest anything or be happy about the journalists <laughs> raising their own personal profile, because ultimately that just makes the journalists more valuable and, and you know, to themselves and not to the brand. So, right. you know, that's, that's really what the kind of people we're going after are those that are bringing more value and are not 
being compensated in a way that reflects their true value to the brand. Well, what's interesting is the Atlantic is now recruiting journalists with newsletters, you know. Oh, yeah. A lot of outlets are doing that. Forbes is doing that. A couple others. Time, I think, was toying around with that. And and they're trying to head off. I mean, the Times is doing that. I get a Kara Swisher newsletter now. The, mm-hmm. They're doing this because they see, first of all, the appeal of the newsletter format. And second, you know, they've had people leave the Times and go out and make way more money on their own or with other startups like us that are trying to recruit using different economic models. And they think that they can get in on that and offer offer a hybrid model. I don't know what the Atlantic is is offering in terms of compensation, but you know, if you are operating your own substack and making X amount of money and the Atlantic wants to bring you into the fold and capture the value of your subscribers, that's worth a lot. Right. Well, and then we were talking about whether people will pay for content. And it seems like Puck has a foundation resting on two bets. One is that journalists are influencers and powerful brands in and of themselves and audience draws, as we've just talked about. And two is that content shouldn't be free, that you should pay for it. Uh, Do you think that people are ready to pay for content or you or what content are they ready to pay for? If I'm sitting at a digital publication and I'm struggling with my business model, how do I parse what people will pay for and won't pay for? I mean, I, I hate this word differentiated, but it, it really does matter. If what we're seeing is what people are willing to pay for is something they feel they cannot get in this massive Borg of news content that it seems to exist everywhere. And whether it's on Apple News or on Twitter or in your Facebook feed or wherever, there's this perception of news that people seem unwilling to pay for. And then there are these brands that I believe are on two sides of a barbell. There's the New York Times on the left and the Wall Street Journal and these super brands that have the volume and have the credibility and have the exclusiveness where you feel that you need to subscribe to them to be a semi-informed person in the world. And that's great. That's on one side of the barbell. And then I feel like the other side is the niche publication something that appeals directly to your interest and makes you feel smarter or more business savvy or entertained. And it's appealing directly to you, not, you know, massive brand. Those outlets I think are going to be successful and are going to convince people to pay for them because the content feels differentiated. The middle of the barbell is everything from Buzzfeed to your local newspaper to some of these kind of, traffic chasing brands that have kind of abdicated their brands to just chase everything for traffic. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think those brands are going to be able to get people to pay because they're not doing anything that feels differentiated. Right. One of the things about having journalists, influencers is that you all did grow up in traditional media. Your career tracks with the rise of the digital world, right? But you grew it through more traditional media and all of the institutional things that helped that. But then it's the, those institutions are crumbling or under threat. Obviously you're okay. But if we look long-term, because obviously you have investors, it's not just a flash in the pan. They want it to exist for a longer term. How are you growing a stable of people who will be the next you? Where do they come from? Do you grow them? Do you recruit them? How does that work? You know, I struggled with this when I was at Hollywood Reporter because I was very interested in growing 
the next generation of reporters, editors, and it was really difficult to recruit. I don't don't know what it was. Maybe it was my own fault, probably my own fault and not, you know, looking hard enough. But the skill set I was looking for, which were, you know, connections and uh, knowledge of the industry and reporting chops, aggressiveness, but not you know, someone who's crazy, like, that, <laughs> that, was really difficult. that was really difficult. And if you look the way the kind of evolving, it's, it's tougher for younger people to break out because you're not getting that kind of training that maybe people once did. But at the same time, there's more opportunities than ever. I know people talk about the world of media um, getting smaller, but I actually think the opposite. I think there's more opportunities to do good work anywhere. And a good story will travel no matter where it comes from these days. It's not the hierarchy that you, you know, you once had to write for one of 10 outlets or else it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's really gone away. And you can see brands being reinvented overnight or going away and becoming irrelevant. And I, I just, I think talent wins out in this situation. Um, it's just about finding the, the right platform that fits, that fits the writer and the editor. And if it doesn't exist, create it. It's not that hard. Right. Well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate that you took the time to to share about Puck today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.